All right, thank you, Mark, for leading us in singing. And welcome back. Uh, it is a joy to be back together tonight and uh, studying this topic of Christian maturity. And it's hard to believe that it is already week number seven. Uh, we've got two weeks left tonight and next week, and then we'll wrap up the series. So um, thanks for sticking with it. Uh, guys in the back, could we get the PowerPoint projector on? That'll help me be able to see and not have to turn around every time. Thanks, guys. Well, we've covered a lot of ground uh, over the series, and um, sometimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds, if you ever feel like that. Uh, we've said a lot, and it's, it's useful just to kind of pull back and see where we've been. So let's do that. Let's take a step back. We won't review everything. But uh, let's just look at a few uh, of the things we've learned. And we've said this almost every time, but we've learned that the overall aim of our lives as Christians, um, we've learned that God's great goal for us, we might say, as Christians, or Paul's goal for every single one of his converts, is that we do what? Mature, right. Not a trick question. That we mature. That's right. That we grow up to maturity, as we're saying in this series. The Lord wants us to change, in other words. He wants us to become different people, spiritual adults. We won't ever become completely perfect right now in this life, but we can become mature in this life. And that should be the target of every single one of us here tonight. And that's what we've been after in this series. But what does it mean to be mature? We hit that in the very first week. Uh, we looked at some of those evidences, but... Let's just get our minds around some of this again, just by way of review. What are some of these evidences of maturity? The scriptures gave us some categories, and we could say for starters, a mature person is somebody who is refreshingly humble. We talked about that. Like Paul in Philippians 3, we know we've not arrived yet. We're far from Christ himself in terms of just our growing up. We've not, we've not arrived at perfection Mature people still sin, but the difference is they know how to respond when they do sin. How they know how to take responsibility, they know how to get back up, they know how to keep trusting Christ. And even though they're not perfect, they're not stagnant either. So we could say a mature person is steadily progressing. They're in hot pursuit of becoming more like Christ every single day. That's the goal. They forget what lies behind, and they strain forward to what lies ahead. Again, using Paul's language in Philippians 3 there. They steadily move, move forward. And this steadiness, this, consistent, this consistency in their life comes from the truth. They're stabilized by the truth. A mature person is not ruled by their emotions or their desires, as we're going to see tonight. They've learned to govern their desires by Christ's truth. They also know what to do with their hard circumstances. Well, that's later. They're joyful in suffering. They know what to do with their circumstances. They know that God brings difficulties into their lives, not as punishment, but to purify them. And they've learned to submit to the Lord in those trials. They've learned to rejoice, like we've said, in those trials. Because they know that the Lord's producing more fruit in them. They're coming to slowly resemble Christ. 
Their lives are characterized by Christ-like behavior, not fleshly behavior. They're not easily ensnared by sin anymore. They know what it takes to put sin to death. And they know the sweetness of, of victory. Not perfect, but consistent. And as a result, a mature person is extremely useful to other people. Extremely useful to others. They're not constantly in a spiritual crisis, we might say. They use their gifts to build up the body. They can, they can help other people get free from ensnaring sin patterns. They're just useful in, in other relationships. And those are just some of the marks, some of the benchmarks, we might say, some of the, the evidences of maturity, that maturity that we're striving for as Christians. They're a snapshot of the goal of what Christ is empowering every single one of us here tonight to that end, to, that, to reach that end. And we've been using this analogy over the last few weeks, and you're probably sick of it by now, but um, it's useful to me, so we're going we're gonna to keep riding that train. It's the life that awaits us. This kind of life is the life that awaits us when we get out of the woods. It's a life of consistent joy, a life of stability, a life full of purpose, a life that brings great benefit to yourself and to others. As we're going to see tonight, this is what it means to be truly human. Truly human, as we were created to be, as we were created to live. And it's so important to have this vision out in front of us this vision of the mature life, why is that? Because it's motivating, isn't it? When you see this out in front, you might be humbled, but yet at the same time it's motivating, something to, to pursue, because we only have one life. We only have one life to live as fruitfully as possible. Because before we know it, each one of us will be standing before Christ. We'll be standing there with Him, before Him, reviewing our lives. Reviewing the fruit. Giving an account to our Lord of how we lived. And receiving our reward for what He produced in our lives. But the time for that is now. And our pursuit of a mature life, this kind of life, is the very best Investment we could make is the very best life we could live. So over the last few weeks, we've really dialed in and on our role in this process, on the part we play in growing up to, to maturity. And we said that our responsibility in this process can be summed up really in one word. You remember what the word is? Faith, right. One word, summary, is faith. Or we could say in a phrase, we're fighting for faith. Fighting by faith, we might say. The life I now live in the flesh, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Learning to trust Jesus, to rely on him above what I think and feel. Learning to step out in faith and obedience based on the truth. That's the role that we play. That's our role. And it's the fight to trust Jesus, the fight of faith. So we might say our role is fighting by faith. And then we've broken that fight down into stages. When it comes to making progress, think about progressing to maturity, it's a progress out of sin and toward righteousness. So the first step is breaking sin's pattern in our lives. It's getting my foot free from the trap we've said. Getting free involves first responding biblically to our sin. 
going to un, unsnap that trap, we have to respond biblically to our sin and not, not continue to spiral downward. We can't keep hiding our sin like Adam did. We can't keep blame shifting like Adam did. We've got to admit it. We've got to take responsibility for it in honest confession. We can't try to self-atone and sow our own fig leaves. We've got to look to Christ for mercy. Not just that, but when we're ensnared, we have to seek help from others in the church, don't we? Other spiritual people, Galatians 6. But that's responding biblically to your sin. And that's the initial work of getting that foot free from the trap. But we've said, as good as it is to have a free foot, uh, you're not out of the woods yet. You're just out of the trap. And those woods are full of more traps. You don't know the way out. And you don't have very good navigation instincts either. In fact, your old instincts, we could call them that, your old instincts lead you back into those same traps, back into the same patterns of anxiety, back into those same patterns of lust, of anger, fill in the blank. So that means you have to learn to reject those old instincts, or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to put off your old self or to trash the old self, like we've said. Even though you're new creatures in Christ, new creatures with new desires for righteousness, even though that's true, we still carry with us this old self that we have to throw away. He's deceived. That deception churns up all kinds of desires in us for sin. And these desires oppose our new desires that we have in Christ. And so that means we've got to learn to discern His influence. To go back to the metaphor, we can't rely on our old instincts to get out of the woods. We, have to tr- we can't trust what we feel. We can't trust what we desire. We can't trust how we used to think. Or even the assessments that we make about what's true. Instead, Paul says we have to renew our minds. To renew our minds with truth. We looked at that extensively last time. If we're going to make our way out of the woods, if we're going to make our way to Christian maturity, we have to abandon our old instincts and learn to read the real map, the true map, the map that tells us what is accurate. Because this map locates the traps, and it shows us the path around them and back out. It shows us how to get out of the woods and not to return to those patterned lusts, those fits of rage, those bouts of self-pity. So the truth, then, is the only way out. It's the only, only way we'll be able to evaluate that reel that's going in our heads that we said. The Scripture helps us assess our own thoughts. It enables us to smoke out the deceptions of the old man. It enables us to replace those deceptions with truth. It shows us the path out of the woods, we've said. And not just out of the woods, as good as that is, but beyond the woods. It shows us the path to fruitful fields, to scenic views of of waterfalls. And Like we said a minute ago, it shows us the the path to a truly fruitful life, a truly meaningful life, a a truly mature life. And that means we have to know the map. We have to renew our minds. We have to believe what it says above what our instincts might tell us. That's mind renewal. 
But guess what? Even studying the map isn't enough to get out of the woods. What's required? You have to follow the map, right? You have to actually put one step in front of the other. You have to start walking. You've actually got to act on what's true. And that's actually Paul's final instruction in Ephesians 4. That's what Paul calls putting on the new self. It's learning to live in light of the truth. It's learning to walk a new path. So if you're not there already, you can turn to Ephesians 4. It's learning to put on the new self, he says. And that means it's walking a new path, and sometimes that new path is clear. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes you want to follow that new path because it's appealing to you. It happens almost instantly, right? Why is that? That's because you're a new creature in Christ. You're alive now. You have new desires you didn't have before. As the Lord renews your mind with His truth, as He exposes sin for what it is, sometimes your desires are just transformed instantly. In obedience, then, walk in the path, we might say. It feels natural. It feels exhilarating. It feels like what we would expect a new heart to feel like. And so obedience in those cases is relatively easy. But sometimes, and probably in reality, more times than not, something else happens, doesn't it? You study the map, and you look up, what do you see? No path, right? So you look back down, you study the map, you look back up, no path. Make sure you got it right. Am I getting it right? Study the map, look back up, don't see a path. There should be a path here, you say, according to the map, but there is no path. And your old instincts kick in, right? Oh, no, 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 not that way. Not that way. That's not the path. That's going to be hard. Look at those briars. You don't want to go that way. You're going to get scratched up. It's going to be difficult. You might get lost again. Probably another bear trap under there. But the map says this is the path out. It's the only way out. So that means... You've got to full-on clear a new path. You've got to walk it. And that's hard. And that's putting on the new self. Sometimes it's easy and it feels right to act in line with the truth. Other times it feels like it's the hardest thing you've ever done. It's the scariest thing you've ever done. It's the most counterintuitive thing you've ever done. And especially in those areas of besetting sin. It feels like you're denying yourself. It feels like you're dying because you are. You're putting to death the deeds of the body. And that's our next step in this fight of faith that we're calling it. We're cutting a, a new path here We're learning to walk down that path, and that's what we're looking at tonight. That's our theme. We're going to look back at Ephesians 4. We'll start there, and then we'll look at some other places. But you can go ahead and and turn there if you haven't already, and let's read these familiar verses one more time. Um, 
back beginning in verse 20. Paul writes, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, number one, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and number two, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and number three, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So tonight, I'm going to keep it simple, and we're just looking at three questions here. We want to ask and answer three questions about this process of putting on the new self. And the first thing we need to do before we dive into this practical application is really get our minds around this new self. So we're going to ask, what is this new self? What is it? What exactly are we putting on? What is the new self? Well, Paul takes some time here. He takes some time to describe this new self, and he, he does the same thing he did back in verse 22 when he described the old self, right? He gave it gave us some color. And so what is this, this new self? Literally, it's the new man. Old man, new man. And this new man is, is it's the way of describing a new human nature. A new human nature. Or a new humanity, we might say. A humanity that belongs to the new creation. So we'll, we'll call it, it's a new humanity. It's important to know that this is not the first time that Paul has used this phrase in the letter of Ephesians. In fact, here in chapter 4, he is echoing back to something he said in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, you can go ahead and turn there, chapter 2, verse 15. He, he tells us about this new man, and that's the first time we see this in Ephesians. And in the wider paragraph of this chapter, he's talking about how Jesus' death has done something unique. It's actually unified two separate groups into one group. It's brought the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other, brought those two groups together. And, Paul says, that Christ has created something new. Hear the word? Created something new. A new, literally, man. New man, Paul says. Look in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Here it is. That he might, here's why he did that, that he might create in himself one, here's our phrase, new man in place of the two. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul's point here is that Jesus' death has brought into existence something new. A new humanity, we might say. A new humanity made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Or you might think of it as a renewed humanity. It's the restoration of human nature. Originally created, that nature was originally created in God's image, marred by the fall, but now it's being restored in Christ and created anew. It's the new Adam, we, we might say. The renewed people 
is this new man, the people who are destined for the new creation, to inherit that new creation. And if you flip back to chapter 4 in our text, Paul's echoing back to what he told us there in chapter 2. And he wants us to see that our task is to learn to put on the new human nature. This new humanity, learn to live like real humans, we might say. And this is so helpful for us. This means that we're learning how to be truly human. It's not that we're simply learning how to avoid sinning. Like sinning's bad, it is bad. You want to avoid that. But it's learning to become something glorious. Sin is anti-human. It's far less than what God created us to be. So to obey God in Christ is the true essence of being human, we might say. It's how we were originally intended to flourish on earth in the beginning. And it's a true and noble life. It's something worth living and dying for. And it's what will last on into the new creation. This is the new humanity that we get to put on right now in and through Christ. But notice something else that Paul says about this new nature. He says it's already been created. It's already created. You see that here in the language? He says it's created, this new, this new self, created after, he goes on to say. He's telling us then to put on something that's already in existence, meaning we're not creating it as we obey. The new nature is already ours in Christ. We could say it that way. It already belongs to us. And Paul says something similar back in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, we are God's workmanship, listen to the language, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. His point is that we've already been given this new nature. It's already ours through Christ, and we received it at our conversion, or to use his language, at our new creation. When you believed in Jesus, God created you afresh. This is your fundamental identity now, like we've seen. We're new humans and part of the new creation because of what Christ has accomplished. When we believed in him, this new identity was granted to us freely. We didn't earn it. We're not creating it either as we obey. As we learn to obey, then, we're simply reflecting what is already ours in Christ. Or we can say it like this. We're learning to practice what's already ours in possession. Right? We're learning to practice what's already ours in possession. We've already got it. So Paul here is using a clothing metaphor, and, and to keep with that analogy, it's as though Christ has purchased and given to us the most beautiful and expensive clothing, the best wardrobe. Something we could never afford. They're his clothes, but now he's given them to us to actually put on. We have to put them on. We have to appropriate those clothes into our daily lives, we might say. We have to learn to, to manifest in our lives what's already been given to us, what we've already been created to become. And so, it's already created, that's Paul's point. But notice, he goes on, and it's, it's created after something. 
It's created after the likeness of God, he says. It reflects God's character. Paul says pretty literally here that it's our new self is created according to God. This is all he says, according to God. Or we might say, after God's likeness. The new self is the true image of God, we could say. It's patterned after his character. And then Paul gives us some specific qualities, right? Kind of like shorthand. Just summary. He says it's created in true righteousness and holiness. Our new self then is fully righteous and fully holy. Christ earned it for us. That's our identity now. And now we're learning to live up to it. Right? We're patterning our lives after that righteousness, after that holiness that we've already received. And so that's what Paul says this new self is. What an honor to be able to appropriate into our lives this new human nature. This new self is the newly minted human nature. It's created after God's own likeness. But then that raises another question, doesn't it? What does it look like to actually put on something that we already have? What does this process look like? What is it? What are some, maybe we could say it like this, what are some concrete examples in Paul's mind of putting on these clothes? Now, we're not going to do this, but if we continued our study through Ephesians beyond this passage, we would see that Paul gives lots of practical examples of what this righteousness and holiness looks like in real time. He talks about, he gives specific directions, he talks about specific scenarios. And his point, and I think what we take away, is we don't reflect God in the abstract. But we reflect God in our daily lives, in our relationships with other people, in our workplace, in the church that we go to, at our, within our family units. That's where the reflection, the glory of God's put on display as we learn to reflect His image. But just to whet your appetite, just listen to some of what Paul says that this looks like on a day-to-day basis. Just going to rattle it off for you. It looks like, verse 25, chapter 4, it looks like speaking the truth with each other. It looks like being angry about the right things. And it looks like pursuing reconciliation when we're offended, when we're angry about the wrong things, right? It looks like working hard at a vocation so you can meet the needs of other people. It looks like learning to speak words that actually build others up and give grace instead of tearing people down. It looks like being kind and affectionate with each other and lavishly forgiving each other. It looks like imitating God, he says, loving other people, chapter 5. It also looks like sexual purity, Paul says. This was a big deal because he, he knew it was a big temptation for Ephesus, for us today. Most of the commands he gives in this section are in one or two verses, but in this section about sexual purity, it's 12. He also talks about how we manage our time, how we make the most of the time that God's given us. He shows us that reflecting God has implications in our church gatherings. We should be filled with the Spirit. It should impact the way we sing, the way we encourage each other. Then he breaks it down even further according to some specific Life scenarios for wives, 
Looks like submitting to your husbands. Husbands, looks like sacrificially loving your wives. Children, looks like obeying their parents. Parents, looks like nourishing and instructing your children. Slaves, it looks like obeying your masters. Masters, it looks like treating your slaves with dignity and respect. The point is Paul's pressing this down. He's pressing this righteousness and holiness into every aspect of our lives. God wants us imitating him. He wants us reflecting his character in all the nooks and crannies of our lives. That's where his glory is put on display for all the universe to see. Now, sometimes we can read a list like this or you can hear a list like this. You can look at all those examples and you get overwhelmed, right? Like, it's quite a, quite a lot. Like your house after a busy weekend. Like Sunday night. <laughs> the Mackey household. Seems like every room's a mess. You know, and it feels overwhelming just to kind of walk through it and clean all this up. Monday's coming. And sometimes our lives can feel that way. We need to grow in all these areas and it feels like a crushing burden. But instead of thinking of it as a burden, we should think of it as an, as an opportunity. All the various areas in our lives are like a new frontier. It's like territory that Christ has already claimed and he's going to take dominion over. He's planning to occupy it. It won't happen all at once. It'll happen slowly over time, but he's planning on it. So don't grow discouraged. It's an opportunity to bear fruit for God in new ways, lasting ways, eternal ways. Think of it as an opportunity, not with this crushing despair. You have so far to go. So, as we're thinking about what it looks like, that, that raises a third question here, and we'll, we'll spend the rest of our time on this question. It's, it's the practical question that we're, we're aiming at here, and it's how do we make progress in putting on the new self? How do we make progress? How do we move forward, and especially in those besetting areas, right? How do we move forward? Well, my encouragement to you is, if you're looking at that list, you're hearing, hearing all that stuff that I just talked about where Paul goes in the rest of Ephesians 4 and 5 and feeling overwhelmed, my encouragement is not to try to eat the entire elephant at one time. Last time I told you just to pick one area, pick the most problematic area, pick that area that's most convicting in your life and start there. Let's say it's lust. You've observed the pattern. Super tempting to look at things you shouldn't look at at night, before bed, maybe when you're alone. You've owned it as sin before the Lord, and now you're trusting Him. You've also written down that reel in your head like we talked about last time. You've met with somebody in the, here in the church. They've helped you discern some of those specific lies you've been believing, and now you've got some verses written down, some truths to battle those lies, okay? So far, so good. Your foot's free from the trap. You've got your map in hand, but what's next? Well, now it's time to start walking. And you're going to want to prepare for the next temptation. You're going to want to prepare for the next tempting scenario that you are going to face. Whatever that scenario is, you want to start preparing for it. It may be that situation at work that tempts you to be anxious. If 
Anxiety is your besetting sin. Or maybe when the kids are, are fighting and they're at each other and that tempts you just to respond in kind and lash out at the kids. Get in line, you know. Whatever it is, that's the front line. That's the battle. So back to our example with lust. If you know that lust is a struggle before bed, then that's the time to prepare for it. So have your truths on hand, ready to review. And just assume you're going to know it. Let's say one of the most tempting lies for you is that you just, you just always done this. This has always been a part of your life, and, and the temptations are too strong. It feels like it's just part of who you are, so why resist, right? The desires are, are too difficult. And that's part of that reel that's going in your head. But you've learned that that's not true. Somebody took you to what Paul says in Ephesians 5 here about sexual purity, and you've learned that you're no longer in darkness anymore. That's not your identity. Paul says it's light in the Lord. You're part of the light in Christ. That's your new identity. That's what's true. So you've got that truth on hand, and you've got it somewhere accessible, let's say, beside your bed on an index card, in your journal, wherever it is. But it's ready. It's there. It's ready for you to look at and review. But you've also got to make sure, not just that you have the verses in hand, but you've also got to, to make a plan for what obedience will look like in that moment. Now, you'd think, if I really believe this on my index card, in my Bible, my journal, that I've written it down, if I really believe this, that I'm no longer darkness, but I'm light in Christ, and that Christ is commanding me not to indulge in this, what should I do instead? What's the, what's the path? What, what sh- how should I walk? Obviously, you won't entertain the lustful thoughts or look at lustful things online. That's obvious. So obedience would look like not taking any of those things with you in your bed, your phone, your computer, whatever it may be. But it will also look like not just the negative, but also doing something positive, doing something fruitful, Right? What could you do instead, this is the question, what could you do instead in that moment that would build Christ's kingdom instead of Satan's kingdom? Well, another obvious choice would be sleep. Right? Sleep would build the Lord's kingdom because it would enable you to get up early and spend time in the Word and renew your mind before the day starts. Lots of things, right? But what if you're... What if your mind's just still burning and lingering? You can't, you don't feel like you can go to sleep, right? You could journal a prayer for other people. You could start journaling, start mimicking the Valley of Vision, mimicking Paul's prayers in Ephesians. Start writing those prayers out in your journal. Typing them out on your computer. Maybe not your computer. This is the issue you're working on. Maybe your journal, your hard copy journal. Taking a picture of it. Next day, sending it to one of the friends that you're, you're praying for. What are you doing? You're building up the kingdom of God. You're producing eternal fruit in that moment. You're building Christ's kingdom as you go to bed instead of building Satan's kingdom. Now, that's just something super small, but it's a plan, right? It's something. It's helpful to know what you're going to do in the moment. When your desires are raging, don't try to think up something on the spot uh, in those moments. 
You're in the fog of war. It's not going not gonna to work out well for you. Your judgment's already clouded by your desires. So that's an example of making a plan or preparing for the next temptation, like we've said. The planning part of it. Well, what do you do when it hits? The temptation lands. Well, obviously, like we said, you've got to recall the truth in the moment of temptation. When that sinful craving hits, it's like we, we drive into a dense fog, like kind of in the valley. Can't see anything all of a sudden. You can't see what's around you, even though it's still very much around you. It's still there. It's nothing, about you. nothing about your surroundings has changed. It's just the fog has set it. We need a strong wind to come and dispel that fog so we can see clearly. And the wind is the Word of God. And this is exactly what Jesus did in His own temptation in the wilderness. Familiar text. I just put it up there for you. Luke 4. Every time Satan came to our Lord with a lie, with twisted Scripture. What did he do? He dispelled the fog. He battled it with texts of Scripture, literally. Now, one of the last things your heart, one of the last things your old self is going to want to do is rehearse truth in the moment to combat your lies. It's like the last thing you're going to want to do. But that's what has to happen. If you're anxious, your heart is going to want to run down the anxious thought path rather than to find the truth path. Or if you're angry, the last thing your angered and self-justifying heart wants to do is to be exposed by the truth. So that's where we have to go. We have to go to the truth. Back to it. So in that moment, review those truths you've been internalizing. Rehearse them in your mind if you can. And if you can't, go back to wherever you have them written down. If you don't know where they are, phone a friend. Right? We need each other. Call somebody that knows you, can remind you of what is true. Have them remind you of those specific and targeted truths that's going to help dis disperse that fog. We do it for each other all the time. And so to, to take our example from earlier, the person who's headed to bed feeling the strong urge to look at pornography, now they're in the moment, they want a little pleasure before bed, it won't hurt anyone, they think. They have to go back to the truth, even though it's the last thing that their simple heart wants to do. They have to say, no, no, Christ, you say this stuff ends in death. Proverbs 5. You say it ends in death. You say it won't be ultimately pleasurable because my conscience is going to be guilty. I'm going to have to face the shame of dishonoring you, Lord. I'm light in the Lord, Paul says. And there must not even be a hint of this in the church. Must, meaning, I can't have a hint of this in my life. If I give in, I'll be defiling Timberlake since I'm a member there. I'm supporting Satan and this satanic pornography industry rather than Christ if I give in. Changes the dynamics. 
because that's true. What's happening? You're battling the lie that just popped up that says, I'm a little partner for a guy. Kind of mumbles too. That's the way my real does. What? It's a joke. You're battling lies with truth. Now, sometimes reviewing the truth radically alters our desires and praise God for that. Amen? But other times, reviewing the truth may only, get this, inflame the old self. Even more towards sin. And especially the, the, the closer you are to the beginning of this process, you start battling and boom! You expect the old self just to roll over when you flick it. It's not the way it works. You've not built up any spiritual muscle. You're on the front end. You're starving the old self's cravings. And that sometimes makes it crave it all the more. And if you don't realize this, you're going to be tempted to think that the truth is somehow not working. Did you catch that? If you miss any everything else about what I'm saying tonight, don't miss that. That is the lie that I counsel all the time. The truth isn't working. Why? Because it's not changing my desires. Well, it might. When it does, praise God. But that's not the guarantee. You think, ah, I've done all this work to expose the lies, to get the truth in my mind, memorization is on my cards, and here I am again going to bed, feeling this intense craving to lust. I guess the truth isn't working. My desires aren't changing. Or you might be tempted to doubt. Am I even a Christian? Am I working hard? Do I even have the Holy Spirit? Why do I still crave evil like this? So what do you do if you still feel that strong urge to be anxious or be angry or lust? It's super tempting at that moment because you feel demoralized and you just want to give in. To give full sway to your desires, to how you feel. But it's right here. It's right in this moment where the growth happens. This is the million dollar moment. Because you have to act by faith, not by how you feel. So many believers I counsel are surprised when their flesh doesn't just roll over when they renew their mind. They're surprised by the strength of their old desires. They think something is wildly wrong if they don't feel like obeying. Or they feel like it's not real obedience unless their desires are also in line. Like they're somehow hypocritical, right? But consider a few examples with me of this. Consider Abraham. When the Lord told him to kill his son, you think Abraham wanted to do that? Do you think there was anything in Abraham's heart that wanted to go sacrifice his son? No. But what did he do? He trusted God's word, even though it made no human sense to him and contradicted God's promises. It went against everything in Abraham. 
But he obeyed by faith. By faith. He acted in faith, not by what he felt. Or how about our Lord's example? In Luke 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually asked the Lord, his Father, to change the plan. You realize that? He appealed to his Father to remove the cup, the cup of suffering from him. Luke 22, 42. Then what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours. Jesus' example here shows us that obedience is often very costly. It is often very difficult. In a mysterious sense, one that I can't really explain to you right now, it, this, it, it ran contrary to the perfect will of the second person of the Trinity. These, right? God's plan ran contrary to the Son of God's will in that moment. He didn't sin. But he also, in his humanity, did not want to face the full fury of the Father's wrath. And yet... He submitted his will to God's. He obeyed by faith. Now, if the Son of God had to yield his will to the Father, his perfect will, how much more will we have to yield our wills to the Father? We're talking about yielding our sinful self-will to the Father. We're talking about yielding our cravings to sin to the Father, right? Right? And so again, just trying to hammer this point home, because it's so important. I counsel people who think they can, if they can just renew their minds enough, if they can just get that perfect counsel, or that perfect disciple, right? If I can just get the right advice, or the right verse, I'm going to call this friend, call that friend, call that, obedience will be easy. It'll be easy. You ever thought that? No, I have. This is a subtle lie that we believe. The lie that obedience ought to be easy for us, or it will be easy for us if we're doing it the right way. Sometimes it will be. But sometimes it won't be. Sometimes the hard reality is this Christ calls us to act contrary to what we feel. In a given moment. And he modeled it for us. It's not hypocritical. Why? Because it's motivated by faith. It's rooted in what we believe. Our actions are rooted in truth. And it does not matter how we feel about it. Our feelings are not determined. We can rise above them by the power of God and obey in faith. So an example of what this sounds like, what this looks like in this 
illustration we've been working out. Father, you know my sinful cravings right now. I, I confess I really do want to give in to lust, but I'm, I'm going to yield my will to yours. Not my sinful self-will, but, but yours be done. Your will be done. I'm choosing to believe that your warnings are true. And I'm not going to act out in looking at what I shouldn't look at, even though I want. Let me go do something else. And when you get this principle that faith and not feelings is at the root of our obedience, that is a game changer. That is when growth can really start happening. Growth will escalate in your life. And here's the good news that the conscious choice to obey in faith, regardless of how you feel day in and day out, is precisely how you grow to maturity. So we can say it like this. We need to practice this day in and day out. Constantly, like Hebrews 5 says. It's the day in and day out practice of these things that we've just described this is the step-by-step path towards spiritual maturity. The renewal of your mind and the deliberate choice to act by faith and not by your feelings. Over time equals maturity. And that's what the author of Hebrews says propels you to more discernment and more obedience. Look, look with me, I got it on the screen here. Hebrews 5:14. He says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Did you catch how he describes a mature person? He says they've had their powers of discernment trained. They're discerning people. And how did that happen? By constant practice. Constant practice. They were renewing their minds. They were choosing the good by faith. And those daily choices, as hard as they might be in the moment, they were transformative over time. The constant practice of choosing the good in faith, regardless of how they felt, is what built their maturity. It honed their discernment. You can think of it as like building spiritual muscle. Right? Every time you choose obedience and faith, guess what you're doing? You're building that muscle. You're deepening your convictions. You're you're sharpening your discernment. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. Is it painful? Of course it's painful. You wake up sore the next morning, right? But is it productive? Oh, yeah. You do that enough over time, and you're going to become strong, spiritually speaking. Let's go back to our woods analogy, right? The map's telling you the way out, and it's, and it's through that briar thicket. 
You've got to do the hard work of, of cutting through it step by step. But as you stay at it, day by day, a lot of things are starting to happen. You're getting better with, with machete, number one. Getting stronger. You look back, there's more of a path. You look down at your feet, the path's becoming more well-worn because that's the path you're walking on day in and day out. You look over to that old path, it's starting to grow over. That old path, the old ways of thinking, the old and corrupt behaviors, they've become overgrown. And eventually, your new way of thinking and the new way of living becomes instinctual. doesn't mean you won't ever go back to the old path, but it means the new path becomes more of the instinct. But it takes time. It takes constant practice. Like everything else does in life, by the way. And that's what the author of Hebrews is, is telling us. Now, there's a, a backdoor encouragement to all of this. And it's the accrual of obedience. It's the building of the spiritual muscle, we might say. As we do this, the more we obey, the stronger we become. And get this, you don't lose all of that obedience, all of that strength, spiritual strength in just one failure. You don't lose the progress. Now, you, is there a setback? Of course. But you don't lose the progress. Sometimes I talk with people who act like if they, if they fail, if they kind of give in to a moment of weakness, they kind of lost the streak. You know what I'm talking about? You probably felt that. Yeah, I'm going so long without doing anything. Sin again. I've been doing so good, not getting angry at the kids, and then at the end of the day, it's like, ah! You know, I just lost it. The day is ruined. I just ruined it. That's not true. Yeah, that's an issue. You've got to repent of that. Seek forgiveness if necessary. But we can't overlook the thousand other acts of obedience in that day. A thousand other acts of obedience by faith that's been cultivating spiritual muscle in that father, mother, whoever it was that, that blew up at the kids at the end of the day. The Spirit's been at work all day long, strengthening you, producing fruit. And that's not all lost because of one moment of sin. That spiritual muscle was gained. And so, we can take heart in this process, even though it, it, it feels difficult, it's labor-intensive many times, that it's producing something that's lasting, that's going to stay with you, and ultimately going to transcend into eternity. So if we go back here, this is Paul's final directive to us in our, our Ephesians passage, and it's, it's how we get out of the woods. It's how we get onto this, this path of maturity. It's putting on the new self is what he he described it as. He's learning to become obedient. Learning to orient our lives to Christ's Word. And it's the most challenging thing we could ever do, and yet, at the same time, it's the most rewarding thing we could ever do. Everything that's good in life, everything that's worthy comes at great cost, doesn't it? This is the most fruitful life. This is the only path to maturity is by putting on the new self. And so next week, we're going we're gonna to wrap the series up. 
Lord willing. Um, and we're going to look at most likely where we where we go from here. We're going to have to kind of chart out chart out a path forward of beyond Ephesians Ephesians four here to see what where where do we go next in this this journey to maturity, and we'll kind of tie everything up and hopefully bring it all together in that in that final message. So, um, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the clarity of your word. We're grateful for the tenderness in how you shepherd us. Lord, we've not talked about this, but to use our analogy, you are with us in the woods. You're with us when we're caught in the bear trap. You're the one working mysteriously behind the scenes amidst all of this through the power of your spirit to free our feet, to energize us, to move us forward, to help us cut the brush, to get us out, to produce fruit. And then on that final day, you reward us for the fruit. We're humbled by that. We're thankful. And I pray, Lord, that this message would be an encouragement to those who are struggling and besetting sin. Would it encourage them to take one step forward in this fight of faith? We pray in Jesus' name.